Just turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the book of Matthew this morning. In Matthew chapter 11. How marvelous, how wonderful. will my song be? Let me just tell you this morning, our song is not marvelous and wonderful because we're singing it. It's not marvelous and wonderful because of the way we sound. It's not marvelous and wonderful because of any instrumentation or who we are. It's marvelous and wonderful because it's declaring the Savior's love for us. It's marvelous and wonderful because it's the Savior's song. It's marvelous and wonderful because it exalts the name of the Lord Most High. That's why our song is marvelous, not because of us, but because of Him. You know, oftentimes, the task of the preacher is to attempt to explain something he can't fully wrap his mind around. This is quite often the case. Sometimes, sometimes I just speak on my own behalf here. Sometimes I, I at least think that I have a better grasp of some things, right? But today, I, I'm just going to confess to you that the task I have is to try to relay and, and preach and teach about something that I am having a hard time wrapping my mind around. Something that I, I've just sat in my office for literally hours this, this week, just kind of contemplating, reflecting, reading, studying, thinking upon what just causes my head to shake. It causes me to just sit back in, in my chair and, and just to bow my head before the Lord and, and wonder. I, I, I just I wonder... What is it that causes you to be amazed? What is it that, that you think upon, and, and when you think upon it, it causes you just to, to shake your head at something that you see and you, you behold, and, and you're just kind of struck. You're, you're struck with awe. You, you're kind of, you take a step back, and, and you're just amazed. You know, we as Christians have, have long stressed the, the reality that, that following Jesus is very much about having a relationship with Him. It's that, that old adage of relationship versus religion. The, the idea of knowing God versus knowing about God. And that idea just, just causes me to step back and, and go, wow. I can stand up and say that I know God. As a Christian, have we ever stopped and thought about how profound it is, how absolutely amazing it is that you might say, I know God. Not simply, not just I know about God or I know of God, I've heard of Him, I, I know He exists. But that we might say, I know God. J.I. Packer wrote a book, Knowing God. If you've never read Knowing God, I would highly recommend it. I think every Christian needs to read that book. But he starts out in, in the, the introduction, the first chapter alone, talking about the people who know their God is, is worth the entire book. And he starts out, I, I thought about reading the whole chapter to you, but I figured you wouldn't bear with me on that, but... So I'll give you a sentence. Packer says, A little knowledge of God is worth more than a great deal of knowledge about Him. Herman Bavnik, in his book, The Wonderful Works of God, wrote this. He said, Indeed, to know God does not consist of knowing a great deal about Him, but of this, rather, that we have seen Him in the person Christ that we have encountered Him on our life's way, and that in the experience of our soul, we have come to know His virtues, His righteousness and holiness, 
His compassion and His grace. We would be wise this morning just to, to slow down long enough to take a step back, to just sit and ponder and mull over and to chew on the very reality of the statement that we so often make. Oh, I know God. Do you know God? I know God. How astonishing. How astonishing is that statement? In Matthew eleven twenty to 24, we covered it last week, and you might remember Jesus spoke a, a word of rebuke to those who are indifferent to the gospel, who are indifferent to his mighty works, and who are unrepentant. And so he rebukes them. We come to this passage today, verse 25 to 30. We, we have this beautiful passage, the passage that is this warm invitation from Jesus that, that speaks to those who know him. And, and the things of this passage are, are really, really astonishing when we stop to think about them. The, the passage, verses 25 to 30, can be broken up into kind of three sections. We're going to cover the first two sections this morning. The first section is verse 25 and 26, where we see Jesus' praise to the Father. The, the second section would just be simply verse 27, where Jesus makes this statement about his relationship with the Father. And then next week, we'll cover verses 28 to 30. We find Jesus' invitation to believers. I want to be very upfront this morning. I just want to lay this all out in front of you. That my goal, my, my hope, my prayer for this sermon would be simply that we leave and have some glimpse, some, some better understanding of the rich blessing of knowing God, of knowing Him, not just knowing about Him, not just leaving saying, hey, I know more about Matthew eleven twenty five 25 to 27, but that we would leave and, and be struck with awe that we might say we know God. And Christian, what I want you to understand this morning is that, that today, if you would say, I know the gospel, and you have trusted Christ, entering into a relationship with God in which you would say, I know God, according to what Jesus says today, it is because it was the Father's good pleasure to reveal it to you. And not only that, but it was because Jesus chose to make it known. It's unreal. It's phenomenal. It's amazing. So may God grant us ears to hear his word today. May he grant us minds to be filled with wonder at who he is and what he's done. And may he grant us hearts brimming with thanksgiving over the fact that he has revealed himself to us. Let's read the word this morning. Matthew eleven twenty five. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. We come to verse 25, and we, we read at that time, we understand that it, it connects what Matthew is dealing with in verse 25 to 30 with the previous section. And I would just remind you this morning, <clears throat> I would remind you that, that Matthew is not primarily focused on the chronology as much as he is focused on the, just the, the message of Jesus' ministry. He's writing primarily focused on the, the themes and content of his ministry rather than the chronology of how 
it occurs. And so just as in verse 20 uh, to 24, Jesus speaks a word of rebuke, he now comes to praise the Father. And it's important, as Matthew sees and Matthew is conveying, it's important for us to see the two and how they work together. He begins in verse 25 by saying, I thank you, Father. This can be rendered, and it may be rendered depending on what version of the Bible, your translation of the Bible you're looking at. It could be rendered, I praise you, or I thank you. The New American Standard, the NIV, both render it as I praise you. It's a statement of thanksgiving and praise to the Father that translators have to make a decision on how to convey it in English. But the bottom line is, it's a moment where Jesus is praising the Father. And there's two ways that he addresses him here that, that we would do well to think about this morning and to observe and to learn from. The, the first way he addresses the Father is by saying, Father, right? He, he calls him Father. It is expressing relational intimacy between he and the Father, between the Son and the Father. And I would just remind you this morning that in Matthew 6, 9, in the, the model prayer, how does he teach us to pray as his disciples? When you pray, pray like this, our Father who is in heaven. We have too been given the privilege, the invitation to come before God and to come before him, calling upon him as Father. Because there is a relational intimacy that we have been given with God the Father through Christ the Son. And so Jesus here is speaking out of this relationship that he has with the Father. And we, too, must remember that we have that same privilege to come before him in relational intimacy. And what this reminds us on one side is that God is near to us. He is involved in our lives. He cares for his own. But Jesus immediately addresses him in another way, right? He says, Father, what? Lord of heaven and earth. Lord of heaven and earth. Here, while Father is relating his intimacy the fact that he is imminent, he is involved, he is with us, he is near to us, he cares for us. When he says Lord of heaven and earth, it's expressing God the Father's holy, divine transcendence. The, the relational intimacy that the incarnate Son had with the Father did not change the fact that God the Father was sovereign, he was the ruler over all things. He was high and exalted, the Lord of heaven and earth. His kingdom knows no bounds. His rule knows no end. He is exalted. He reigns. He rules. And so we would do well right away to just learn and to observe from Jesus' prayers. He comes before God and praying that our God is both intimate and transcendent. He is near to us, but he is also high and exalted. We have to keep that in mind. Our great God is both. We can't fall just on one side or the other. We can't fall into this idea that God is just transcendent. He's so holy that we can't come before him and cry out to him, Father, Abba, Father. But we also can't fall on this side where we're so buddy-buddy and good friends with our Abba, Father, Daddy, 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 that we don't see that he is the high and exalted, magnificent, marvelous, reigning, ruling, transcendent, holy king of all creation. We can't lose either one of them. We have to keep both of them in check. We have to have balance between both aspects of that. So on the one hand, understanding the doctrines of adoption and union with God through Christ means great intimacy and relationship that we have with God. We have that great privilege that we can come to him and address him as father, knowing him as such. But then on the other hand, we have to understand the greatness of God. And when we come to a passage like this, we must understand that he is great. We must have a high view of God. We can't just have this kind of mamby-pamby theology of this little God who fits into our box and operates all the ways that we want him and demand that he operates. We must maintain a high view of God, a God who is holy and magnificent and mighty and reigning over all things. We have to see that in this prayer. A failure, a failure to maintain a high view of God always will result in us thinking that he must act the way we want him to act. And he must do the things that we want him to do. 
See, we lose a high view of God, I guarantee you, you will land there very, very quickly. A, a, a low view of God leads us to, to lower, our, lower our standards, to lower our ways, to weaken our theology. It depletes our worship of true praise. It leads us to ignore the fact that God's grace exalts Him, not us. We can't lose a high view of God. That burden led A.W. Tozer to write his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. And again, the opening chapter of that is worth the book. He writes this to begin the book. He says, The first step down for any church is taken when it surrenders its high opinion of God. Before the Christian church goes into eclipse anywhere, there must first be a corrupting of her simple, basic theology. She simply gets the wrong answer to the question, what is God like? And goes on from there. The heaviest obligation lying upon the Christian church today is to purify and elevate her concept of God until it once more is worthy of Him and of her. We must maintain a high view of God. And listen, if we don't have a high view of God, what Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty five to 27 is really, really difficult to hear and hard to make sense of. But when we have a high view of God, we submit to His sovereignty and His rule and His revelation of Himself. So there's two truths we learn today. There's two truths we get from these passages. First, is that knowledge of God's truth is not based on human wisdom and understanding. It's, it's not based on human wisdom and understanding. It's not based on what I know, what I can figure out, what I can fathom. And so then the question is, well, how, how do we know God's truth then? If it's not something that I can figure out, if it's not based on my wisdom and my understanding, then how do I know God? How do I know about his truth? How do I know the things of God? Verse 25 and 26 teaches us it's because of the Father's gracious will that He has revealed it to us. The second truth we're going to see is that no one knows the Father but the Son. Jesus is very, very blunt. No one knows the Father but the Son. Well, so then my question, I don't know about you, but my question then is, well, then, how do we know God? If you're the only one, then how can I know God? You're saying you have like an exclusive relationship with the Father? Is that what you're telling us? How do I know Him? Verse 27 teaches us that it's because the Son has chosen to reveal Him to us. Those two truths, friends, demand that we better have a high view of God. He's not a nice graphic screen print t-shirt. He's the Lord of all creation. So let's look at that this morning. Let's look and let's grapple with these true truths. And let's allow God to expand our view of His greatness and His grace. Let's, let's be led to worship Him in thankfulness and Praise that he's revealed himself and his truth to us. So the first thing we see, verse 25 to 26, we, let's look at Jesus' praise to the Father. Jesus' praise to the Father, and I would contend to you, it should be ours as well. So he begins, he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that, right? So that is a word I circle in my Bible. Why? Because it's expressing purpose, ex expressing the reason for his praise. So what's the reason? He says, I, I praise you. Why is he praising him? That, he praised him because or that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. You've concealed and you've revealed and I praise you for that. Jesus says, I, I praise you, Father, because you have sovereignly, graciously revealed the truths of salvation to the humble and the lowly rather than allowing the wise and influential and powerful of the world to grab those and figure them out on, them, on their own. He's hidden. He's revealed. He's concealed. He's revealed. He's, what has he done? 
that with. In particular, what has he revealed? He says he's revealed these things. These things would refer to the, the truths, the message of Christ. Contextually moving through Matthew, we understand the, the, the mighty works that he is doing, right, or to testify. We talked about this last week, that his mighty works should be testifying to his glorious preaching and teaching, the preaching of the gospel, the proclamation that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, to repent the kingdom of heaven is here. So these things refers to the truths of God, that which the, the people of Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum rejected. These things that they were indifferent to are things that the Father has revealed. And he praises the Father for revealing these things, but also for hiding these things from the wise by the world's standards are revealing them to those who be his children. The, the wisdom of man can never, on its own, figure out the way of salvation. It's just not going to happen. What, what does the wisdom of man constantly lead man to do? Achieve. If, if you just think about man-based religion, man-based wisdom, what does it always lead to? What does it always trend toward? Climbing the ladder to God, right? It's what it ever does. God's truth, God's revelation is what? There's no ladder tall enough. There's no man strong enough to ascend unto me. The revelation of God Almighty is that he condescends, he descends down the ladder. He comes to man. Right? And that is how salvation is wrought. That God comes to man. That the only way to have a relationship with him is through him. And that is not the wisdom of man. It's the wisdom of God. Now, if you want to turn over 1 Corinthians 1. 1 Corinthians 1. I've been just kind of walking through 1 Corinthians 1 and was just struck this week at reminded of what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, 18, all the way down to 2, 13. And we don't have time to just dig into all of this this morning. But Paul is speaking of the same thing here. He's speaking of the fact that, that God has made known these things. God has made known his truth. He's made known himself. He's made known the gospel to those who are perishing. And he's done so in a way that confounds the wisdom of man. It's not according to the wisdom of man. It's not based on the wisdom of man. But it's based on the power of God, Paul writes about. So if you just look, we'll just kind of skip through this pretty quickly. But I want you to see a few things. 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 18, he's, he's writing to the church in Corinth. He's expressing this great love and confidence in them and their, uh, their, their salvation, their standing before the Lord, even though they had lots of problems, right? A lot of things that he's going to confront in their church in the, the coming pages of the book and the letter. But first, he affirms their standing before the Lord. And then he makes these beautiful statements about the gospel. In verse 18, he says, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. And he asks these questions. Who, where, where is the one who's wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now, at that point, Paul steps back and he says, listen, he gets really personal, right? He says, I want you to consider your calling. Just consider who you are. Did you attain salvation through your own wisdom? Did you climb that ladder up to God? 
Did you figure it out on your own? Did you plan salvation? Did you mark it off? Did you plan that God would become man and come and live a perfect life and die a sacrificial substitutionary death and rise from the grave to live and reign victorious over death? Did you plan that? Did you earn that? Did you deserve that? Was it because you were so noble, so rich, so smart, so funny? That's what he says, verse 26. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Now listen. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that, why? Well, this is why he did it. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ. It's not because of me. It's not because of what I did. It's because of him that I'm in Christ. Who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I can't boast in what I did. I can't boast in what I earned. I can't boast in what I know. I can't boast that I figured it out, that I, I, I had the answer. I knew what to do. I can only boast in Christ and, and exalt him and magnify him because he made it known to me. I can't say it was according to my wisdom. And you can't either. It was God's design, God's plan, God's prerogative. We go with on through chapter 2, excuse me, chapter 2 down to verse 6. He continues, and it's not as though Paul is a hater of wisdom, right? He says, yet among the mature we do impart wisdom. Although it's not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and a hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. For as it is written, what no eye has seen or ear heard, the heart of man even imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Paul is just driving home line after line after line after line that the only reason that you're saved. The only reason I'm saved. The only reason any of us can say we know God is because of the work of God. It's not because of us. It's not because of what we figured out. It's not because of our plans. It's because of Him. And He has hidden some things and revealed Jesus says, I praise you that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and you have revealed them to little children. In in a few weeks, we get to Matthew 13, we're going to hear a statement that's kind of similar. When the disciples asked Jesus, why are you teaching in parables? You might recall, Jesus says this in Matthew 10, or 13, starting in verse 10. To you it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. He goes on to explain that and to flesh it out. You can read that this afternoon, 13, 10 to 17. The bottom line is, it's God's good pleasure that He reveals these things. Who has He revealed them to? Those who are His children. Not those who are, who, who are His children, those who are as children. As you can see the same there. Those who are humble, with open hands, who do not bank on their own pride, their own influence, their own power. They're on acclaim. Those who come humbly before him. Those who he described in the Beatitudes, in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember how he begins? 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The bottom line that we can't miss today here is this. We can say that we know God's truth only because He made it known to us. It's not by our own wisdom. It's not by our own merit. It's not as though God had to make His truth known to us. It's not as though we dialed up God and demanded, you will tell us right now. And He did it. No. God revealed what was concealed for one reason. What's He say in verse 26? Yes, Father, for such was Your gracious will. Or for such was Your good pleasure. Or for such pleased You well. It was the Father's good pleasure to reveal His plan to man. It was the Father's good pleasure to save man through sending His Son to do what we could never imagine. It was His good pleasure to pour out grace on sinners dead, helpless, and enslaved to sin. It was His prerogative, His plan, His decree, His purpose. So that we read in Acts 2.24 about Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Him in your midst As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. He wasn't delivered up to you because that was man's plan and man's idea and man's prerogative and what man figured out. No, it was God's definite plan and foreknowledge that delivered him up. In 1 Corinthians 2.7, we read that, that Paul, we just read this a few minutes, he imparted a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Paul understood that in his own personal life. In Galatians 1, 15 to 16, Paul totally got it. He totally got it. He wasn't walking around going, man, I am the Pharisee of Pharisees. That's who I am, and I earned it, and I've achieved it, and the, I, I've, I know enough that I can tell you about God because all of my studies. No, Paul got it. In Galatians, he understood that he knew the Lord by God's gracious will. He says that, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and called me and who called me by His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son to me. It was God's good pleasure, Paul understood. It was God's grace that revealed Him to him. In Ephesians 1.4, Paul wrote, even as He chose us in Him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. 1 Peter, Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1.20, he wrote that Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God. It's not of our own volition. It's not of our planning. It's not of our accomplishment. It's not of our wisdom. It's holy of God. Holy of God. God has made himself known to us. He was not required to make himself known to us. He did. And it was out of his gracious will, his good pleasure. God found pleasure in revealing himself to us. Oh, but how easy we think we just deserved it. How easy in the back of our mind is it to just think, Well, of course he did. I mean, why wouldn't he? (laughs) Have you seen the things I can do? Have you seen how smart I am? Have you seen how beneficial my skills are? I mean, (laughs) you know, I don't want to brag or anything. If you've heard the gospel... If you sit here and say, I know God. If you say, I am in a saving relationship with God and I bow and I just naturally say, Father. (laughs) It's because God took good pleasure in revealing these things to you. May that cause us to worship and exalt Him. That should absolutely calls us to sing how great you are. That should 
absolutely calls us to say praise to the Lord Almighty. Not to me, but to his name be the glory forever. The second thing we come to, and we come to verse 27. So verse 25 to 26, we have this prayer of Jesus praising the Father for concealing or hiding these things from the wise and understanding, revealing them to the little children. These two groups, according to his gracious will. Then in verse 27, we have the statement that all things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And this verse, mind you, is like theologically pregnant. It is theologically robust. It's, it's theologically brimming over, right? It's that bucket of water that's just boiling over, and at any moment it's just, just blowing out. Like there, there's no way that we're going to cover everything that's in this verse in these few minutes. I don't, I don't even know that we fully, again, fully wrap our mind around everything that Jesus says here. For the sake of time, I just want to break it down. That there's three theological truths here. There's three statements that Jesus makes that are very significant that we need to just be aware of and kind of try to look at. The first one is that the Father has given the Son authority over all things, right? It, it kind of reminds you of Matthew 28, 18, right? That all things have been given to the Son. All authority has been given unto Him. All things, all knowledge, all things are under His feet. He is the head over all things. But what we have here, and we think about theologically, we have an expression of the roles within the triune God, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. Each member of the triune God is co-equal in being, having distinct roles as persons, right? And we see that. We see a glimpse that the Father grants authority to the incarnate Son. He gives that authority to him. So we see that, that the Father has given the Son authority over all things. And so we can just dig into here. We can spend a long time thinking about what does that look like? What is that? How does that work? What does that mean? How does that even apply in our own church? How does that influence the way we function as a church? Right? That every member of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, are equal they're equal. One is not less of a God than the other. They're all equally God. One. But yet they have distinct roles. How does that influence the way we function as a church? How does that influence the way we function our marriages? Right? We could talk about that. The second theological truth we have here is this, is that the Father and Son exist in an exclusive relationship with one another. They exist in this exclusive relationship, this perfect unity the, within the triune God displaced here, or, sorry, dis displayed here in the Father and Son. So we see this. We'll talk about that in just a moment. And then the third truth we see is that the Son is the mediator between the Father and man. The Son is the mediator between the Father and man. So let's think about those last two for a moment. The, there is an exclusive relationship between the Father and the Son here. Right? He, he says, no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. This is a, this is a bold statement. Like, one of the things that this week I was trying to kind of wrap my head around is what this would have been like to be a first century Jew, to be sitting there and hearing Jesus say, no one knows the Father except the Son. No one. Like, you may think you do. You may know a lot of scriptures, but you do not know him. And Jesus is not talking about knowing about, knowing facts about him. He's talking about knowing him. No one knows the Father except the Son. Could you imagine? That would be a, a shocking statement if you were a Jew in that day. You would have heard it. And we can so easily just read right over that, but a Jew in that day would have gone, whoa, 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 back up. You're telling me that I can't know the Father? Yep. So Jesus says, no one, no one knows the Father except the Son. And no one knows the Son except the Father. What we have here is we have 
the realization that Jesus was fully aware of who he was. This idea that, oh, Jesus didn't know he was the Son of God. He didn't know he was the Messiah. He was just walking around as a good teacher and all this stuff. He may have known later and it was put upon him later. No, Jesus fully knows who he was. Jesus knows he's the Messiah. He knows he is the eternally existent Word who was God and was with God. He is the eternally existent, eternally begotten Son of God. He knows that. And he says no one knows the Father except the Son. And no one knows the Son except the Father. This word, when he says knows, it means to to fully know. It's It's an exact knowledge of another through a relationship through an experiential, personal relationship. It's not just a, a knowing about something in a, in, on an intellectual plane, but it's a knowing on a personal, intimate level. The father and son have a unique, exclusive relationship based on who they are. It's based on knowledge of relationship to one another that no one else has. That's why Jesus says in John 10, 30, I and the father are one. I and the Father are one. Later in John 17, remember the high priestly prayer, Jesus is praying and he prays, O righteous Father, it's verse 25 and 26. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. How do they know? Because I made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. There's an exclusive relationship between the Father and the Son. And Jesus is very clear about that. But then Jesus makes this statement. The second, that he is the mediator between the Father and the Son. He is the basis for our own knowing of God the Father. He, he says there, he says, no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. You can chalk that up as an amazing statement from the Word of God. I mean, if we could just grasp that one statement, I, it, it would just radically change our worship. For some, that's why you worship as you do. It's why you exalt the Lord because you've gotten a glimpse of this and realized there's no way I could know God outside of the work of Christ in my life. It's not happening. I owe all to him. All. In John 1.18, the introduction of John, we read, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Thanks be to Christ. Thanks be to Christ for his gracious, revealing work. That's why John 14, 6 carries the weight and the truth and the importance that it carries. What does he say? Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one, no one, comes to the Father, but through me. No one is is holy, the Son. The only way to come to the Father is through the Son. Why? Because no one knows the Father but the Son. No one. So the only way we come to Him, the only way that we can gain knowledge of these things and knowledge of God and a knowing of God is through the work of the Son in our lives. We may be able to gain a lot of knowledge about 
stuff about things, even about theology through our study, through our experience, through reading. But the only way we come to know Him, to relate to Him, to experience Him is through Jesus Christ the Son. Jesus, the Word made flesh, who is God and was with God in the beginning, who is the exact radiance of His glory, who brought forth grace and truth unto us, who eternally dwelt with the Father in perfect fellowship and unity. This Jesus perfectly revealed the Father through His life, His Word, His works, His person, His death, His resurrection. The only way we know the Father is through the Son. We exalt Him and we lift Him. May we have great Thoughts of wonder and awe and amazement and thanksgiving and joy and appreciation and humility over the fact that Christ has revealed the Father to us. It should spur us on to worship Him. And so I want to just leave you this morning with some ways to think, maybe some steps to take out of this. When I think about how does this affect me, how does this how does this impact me? How do I apply this? What are the implications of these verses in my life just every day as I walk across this, this, this earth, as I just walk and journey across the path that, that Christ has set before me? How, do, how does it influence me? How does it affect me? The first thing is it should give us humble adoration. It should work in us this humble adoration that we would have a greater humility before the Lord. It should cause us to absolutely adore him more. We did not deserve to know God. We did not earn that. But he revealed himself to us. He revealed himself. Oh, may we be grateful recipients of his revelation. The second thing is it should give us awe-filled, joy-infused worship. It should cause us some exuberance in worship. Let the redeemed say so. May we rejoice in the Lord our God today. How, How can we do anything but lift our voices in song and our hands in praise at how great and mighty and gracious our God is? Who is like the Lord our God? Strong to save, faithful in love. My debt is paid and the victory is won. The Lord is my salvation. Thanks be to God. To God be the glory. Great things he has done. Let's magnify his name. Oh, come, let us magnify his name together. We are the people who know him. We know him. How do we know him? We know him through Christ. What does it mean to know him? Well, it means that that I can know his grace because he's poured out his grace. He's been gracious to me. I know that he's a patient God. Why? Because he's been patient with me. I've seen it. That time and time again, I rebel. Time and time again, I mess up. Time and time again, my heart is prone to wonder. And God patiently rebukes me and pulls me back in. Why? Because he loves me. And I know that. I I know that he's a God of comfort. Why? Because I've had moments where I've wept and I didn't know how I'd make it, but I was comforted. It was the strangest thing. Why? Because God is a God of all comfort. God is a God of peace, and I know he gives peace. How do I know that? Because I've been through circumstances in my life where I absolutely should not have had any peace at all. But yet, there was peace that surpassed all understanding. And there was this awareness that God was in control, I'm not, and that's the best place to be. And I know that because I've experienced because I know God. I know mercy. Why? Because he's shown it to me. I know joy. Why? Because the joy of the Lord is my strength in moments that I definitely have no strength on my own. It should lead us to just simply worship Him. For some, for some, thirdly, it should lead you to repentant faith. Some of you have heard the gospel, you've heard the call, but you've never responded in faith. You just hear it time and time and time again. Maybe like last week, you're the one who's indifferent. It's like, I'm not repenting. I just hadn't repented. But you hear it. You get, it, even, it, it makes sense. Hey, you're, you're like one who would come up and say, well, how do I know God's working in my life? Well, listen, according to Scripture, if you know, that could be an indication. God is revealing himself to us. God is making himself known to you. You might want to consider 
that God is saying, Hello, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Finally, this should cause us to draw near to God. And the very fact that God made himself known, that by his gracious will, that which was hidden from the wise and understanding, God revealed to us. The very fact that we who knew not God can say we know Him because the Son chose, He made the decision, His volition, He willed, He purposed that we would know Him. I mean, that should cho- cause us to draw near, to draw near in communion with Him in prayer. That, that we would draw near to Him in studying the Word, that we would want to know more about who He is and what He's done and His will for our lives. That we would, that we would draw near just meditating upon His greatness and His character, who He is, His mighty works. We would draw near to Him serving Him. That we would walk by faith. That we would step out in faith. It should absolutely affect how our life functions. Because we long to know this God who made Himself known to us. Thanks be to God that He indeed is there and He is not silent. Let's pray.